0: Welcome to the Journey to Justice podcast. This is episode 15 of our Economic and justice series, where we explore individual and collective action for economic justice in the UK and dive deep into causes of wealth inequality. In this episode, our speakers talk about working conditions during the COVID-19 pandemic and a recipe for economic justice. You will hear from Lola McEvoy. GMB organizer about the vital role of trade unions for economic justice. During the COVID-19 pandemic, she contacted the national press to expose the PPE crisis in care homes. Her actions led to a government investigation to ensure adequate PPE and full sick pay for everyone working in NHS hospitals who are not paid directly by the NHS. So my name is Lola McAvoy and I work for the GMB union We're one of the biggest unions in the country and a trade union's main objective is to make sure that their workers are protected and their members are protected. So we have members in lots of different industries up and down the country um, and we have predominantly female members. And in every workplace, in every type of work, members get together and they decide on the issues that they're really bothered about. So sometimes it's pay. Other times it's if a boss is being really mean and grouchy and not giving anybody any holiday. And and other times it's something really serious, like their safety at work and they might be in danger. As we know, 2020 has been an unbelievable year um, for everybody in the country, but especially for key workers on the front line who've had to face down at work, a place that should be safe and that they should be able to go and do their bit and come home and have a nice family life afterwards like most of us can, it's been very, very difficult because the pandemic has meant that people have been unprepared and unprotected in their workplace and risking their health at the risk of a huge very very serious disease and virus um, to protect the rest of us and our members in health and social care have stood up and been incredibly brave and faced down the pandemic but they have had a fight on their hands to get what they needed to make sure that they were safe at work but what's been particularly interesting in this campaign is how the axis of value that we put upon work as a society in this country has shifted fundamentally so lots of you would have heard about the gig economy which is casualized work it's where you turn up one day you might get a couple of shifts and then the next day you don't get any time at all. So you can't budget, you don't know how you're going to pay your rent at the end of the month and you can't get a mortgage or a loan on those kind of hours. So it's very difficult if you're on in that kind of work. But those kind of jobs and the people who are on those kind of jobs are actually our social care workers and our delivery people. And a lot of the people who produce our food and who stock our shelves in our supermarkets, a lot of those people are also on on those kind of contracts. So historically, those jobs have been sort of dismissed, sort of a bit of a national shame. We've swept them under the carpet, not the trade unions, we've been shouting about them, but as a society as a whole, we've swept them under the carpet and said, oh, it's just the world of work as it is. It's just technological advances. People want their delivery arriving at a certain time, so that it is what it is. But the pandemic has actually been a tipping point to show that we need those workers and they have protected us and carried on working while we've stayed at home, worried about our loved ones. They've been getting up at all hours and making sure that we get what we need to survive as a society and as individuals. So collectively now, we need to think about how we can give them the respect of work that they deserve so that they don't have to worry about paying the rent. So as a GMB organiser, that means I have to make plans, talk to our members in whatever role they're in and see what they're angry about. What do they want to change? So an organizer's job is to cause trouble. <laughs> so it's the best job in the world because you go into a workplace, in my case a workplace, because I'm, I'm a, a trade union organiser. So I go into a workplace and I talk to the members and I say to them, come on, what what is getting you? What's getting your goat? What's really winding you up at the moment? And if they say nothing, I say, all right then, see you again soon, take care. You've got my number, you need anything, no problem. They never say nothing. Everybody, when you bring a group of people together, everybody's got something they want to change if they're given enough sort of energy and support and confidence to take action. So my job is to go in there and give them that confidence to walk a bit taller and take on whatever the target is. And it might be something as simple as just writing a collective letter and saying, actually, we really need some face masks because it's not safe at work for us to be looking after our elderly residents in a care home um, without this protection. Or it might be industrial action. Now, industrial action um, is the strongest and is the sharpest tool in a trade union's toolbox. We do everything we can to avoid industrial action for a number of reasons. One, because it's unpopular. So people find it very difficult to go on strike. They don't see themselves as that. It's a very difficult thing to do, to say, actually, I'm not going into work today because I'm standing up for something. There's a lot of mental barriers to that. There's also financial barriers. If If you take a day in industrial action, so to go on strike, you actually lose a day's pay. So the trade union's job is to make sure that if you're a low paid worker, we'll support you through that. And also, there's a lot of sort of stigma attached when you go back to work. So people are worried about what happens when I get back to work. Am I going to be told off? Am I going to lose pay? Am I going to be bullied? And so although it is our strongest suit, it takes a lot of work and the threat of it is really important. And my job is to encourage people to stand up and be prepared to take that industrial action if they need to, to fight for what they want to win. And we would only ever encourage industrial action on something very serious. But over the course of the pandemic, obviously, there were things like people's actual lives at risk, that is the most serious thing anyone can face in the workplace is to be going to work and potentially catching a deadly virus that there is no cure for, and dying because you weren't protected. So my job was to raise the alarm about things like the PPE in the care homes. So when I got the phone calls from our members saying, I'm not sure this is right, Lola. So one of our brilliant um, care workers works in a care home in East London, and she rang me and said, Um, I think this isn't right. I hope you've got a minute to speak to me. And I said, yeah, of course I do. And, you know, she earns the minimum wage. So that is the lowest wage that the government will allow an employer to pay um, without them being fined. And she's looking after our grandmas and granddads and our mums and dads who are incredibly um, vulnerable and need a lot of care. And she's not given any proper... Salary for that, but she rang me and said, "Oh, we're using um, we're using bin bags um, wrapped round ourselves on top of our uniform because there's no aprons." And um, I've, I've been looking at the news, and it says that we should. You know, the, the the health secretary saying that there's lots of um, of this protective equipment has arrived, but we haven't got it. And I don't know what to do. And she also said that they were being um, told that they weren't allowed to use the face masks in case they ran out, in case um, in case there was any uh unless there were any confirmed cases of COVID-19 my job in that instance was to raise that and get national media attention which is what we did so I took the story from that she told me and I gave it to the national press and we got a number of different tv hits about it and then the government had to uh investigate where the PPE was and ensure that it was actually going to the right care homes. The, the members that we'd mentored and developed to give them the confidence to speak out were the ones who rang up and said, I'm prepared to go to the media to tell the country that the PPE guidance, when we as paramedics should be wearing a mask, is wrong. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, people were told if they are not if they're not wearing, if they haven't got COVID symptoms, they are not, you're not to wear protective equipment. So in the words of one of our reps, she rang me and said, we're dropping like flies because the paramedics were going in. They were told they weren't allowed the PPE. And we know that was because there was a shortage. So they weren't allowed a mask and they were catching it from family members, from the people who were symptomatic. And so they called me and said, that it's wrong, Lola, the guidance is wrong. We've got to get the guidance changed. So then it's about what do I have? What tools do I have to use to gain some impact for our members? How can I? How can I change this power dynamic? And one of those was about statistics and data. And I always think when you use data and statistics, you have to combat it with stories. So what we did was get the stories of our reps, get them to talk about what their situation was, get them to tell us a bit in a human way about what makes them just like everybody else and to back that up with the sickness statistics that are publicly available. So it's about using what's publicly available and then putting some true human stories to it. So one of our reps said that what she was really worried about was... um, taking it home to a daughter, taking it home to a husband, because he, he was a person of colour, and we were seeing that the trends and the way that the people of colour were um, dealing with COVID-19 was disproportionately impacting communities of colour, and that they were like really, really suffering at the hands of this terrible virus. She was really upset and worried about that, so we added that into the story, which meant that more people were interested in the story because it had a different media hook. The other thing that's really important is, to get our members, our ordinary people doing those jobs front and center. So, I put a lot of them up in um, what's called anonymized media interviews, and everybody would have seen them on the telly. It's where you can see a shadow, and we don't give the name because we don't want any repercussions for them to be speaking out. But there are a, that's a, a big way that we use um, media to expose what's going on because a first hand testimony where someone says, I'm worried about getting COVID and I'm worried about the impact it'll have and I'm a key worker, I'm a paramedic, that really resonates with people at home. Public opinion is very important but we're all humans and so if you get the right narrator to tell the story and you put it in a lived experience of a lot of other people, you find the common thread of humanity, people will agree with you. If you tell people off, And you are very aggressive about why other people need to support your campaign and you're really crabby, people are going to go home, watch X Factor because they're tired and things are stressful and 2020 has been rubbish. (laughs) So if you actually think about how you can bring people with you and start from a space of shared common experience, it is doable. The, The members are the union, so all of it is about the members and how they benefit for themselves and how they take an active role in winning from the ground up. And that's what's really great, right? It's contagious. People go, Oh, actually, I fancy taking a bit of action. I want to take some action. I could do that. I could have a go at that. That looks quite like fun. And you get people getting in touch and saying, how did you do that? Will you just tell me what went on? And it isn't complicated. It's just there are very straight ways to do it. Just get a group of people together who've got energy and be creative and articulate what your demands are. So in the pandemic, we've won sick, full sick pay for everybody in the country who works in the NHS hospitals but isn't paid by the NHS. And that's thousands and thousands of the cleaners and the porters and the security guards. They, we won full sick pay for them. We want an extension to the statutory sick pay from instead of being on day three, where you had to wait three days unpaid if you were ill, just to check you weren't faking it. We got that removed to bring it forward that you would be paid from day one if you fell ill. That's for everybody in the whole country. And we got a lot of different other um, wins for people families if they did catch covid at work and sadly pass away so one of the big things that we saw in this pandemic is that people on the front line our key workers have lost their lives and the government was not supporting the lower paid key workers in the same way as it was supporting the higher paid key workers and we got a win to make sure that everybody was treated the same because covid doesn't discriminate based on salary so neither should we and On top of all of that, there have been a number of big shifts that we've been able to do around the way that we respect and honour the work that these people do. And so a lot of our members have come forward and said, actually, I do want to be a rep now. And being a rep in a trade union means that you'll be the spokesperson, right? You'll be the one ringing me saying, can you come down? We need to take action. And people are starting to walk taller and they are starting to recognise that they've got more capital now because of the narrative shift around what's going on in the country. It's not right that the people looking after our elderly, our grandmas and granddads, um, in their later years are not given a decent wage and are, not, and are struggling at the, you know, at the very bottom, asking for crumbs from the table in a pandemic, that's wrong. So we want to see that going forward, the pandemic will, there will be lessons to be learned and that it will fundamentally change the way we value the work of people like our carers.
1: In this episode, A Recipe for Economic Justice, we hear from Barry Supple, Emeritus Professor of Economic History at University of Cambridge and a former director of the Leverhulme Trust. He explains what an economically just society looks like and explores degrees of justice and fairness. He describes three important ingredients for achieving economic justice in society. The provision of education, a well-resourced welfare state and a progressive taxation system. As an economic historian, I was of course interested in, in this sort of issue of uh, justice, but over time and in relation to different sorts of societies. Uh, and in fact, my main interests were uh, in, in English society, British society, a fairly long time ago. Well, what would an economically just United Kingdom look like? Uh, it's obviously a, uh, an extreme question. Uh, because you would have uh, degrees of justice. You could have pure justice in which everybody was actually the same, but it might have difficult consequences. But basically, economic justice would best served by allowing people to have living standards uh, which were uh, responsive to their particular needs and their particular abilities as well, so that no people, no person, no category of person would be left behind and you might have a system which reallocated resources, reallocated uh, spending power in the end so that people could live a reasonably civilised life without being punished by uh, the distortions of the society. The first thing to do, which is rather boring of course, is to find out what is needed And that's why you have censuses and you have statistical information about incomes and about poverty and so forth. But if you found that out, if you've assessed needs, then you can only really bring the government into play. When I say government, I mean society as a whole, the state, to ensure that people are not left behind. Clearly, a society which operates purely as a market economy or capitalist economy can supply a lot of needs, but the nature of competition and the distribution of power is such that you have to have some coordinating authority which can adjust taxes, can adjust income to people who need income but can't work and so forth. The, the disabled people, uh, people in poverty, uh, uh, father, fatherless children and so forth. So you, you must have some sort of system where society as a whole acts and it can only really act through government without being too intrusive without being too disciplined because obviously you want to allow people to have their own uh, their own authority their own ability to act their own ability to earn money or to live without commandeering them but you do need something i mean think of education for example People will not have economic justice if they're not educated. They will not have education unless society as a whole ensures it, and society as a whole can't ensure it without taking money collectively and putting it into an educational system of some sort. It may be voluntary, but mostly in nearly every society, it's public as well. Yes. Well, a welfare state, uh, which is a term that's come in in the last. 100, 150 years I suppose uh, or less than that is an arrangement by which society as a whole tries to ensure that the welfare of people, the economic justice, to use the term um, is reasonably fair uh, to everybody in society in other words it looks after welfare and it can only look after welfare collectively uh, if it acts collectively If you left, if you leave the population as a whole to fend for itself to act for itself then of course the strong and the rich will benefit and the poor and the weak or the underprivileged will not so you must have some mode of adjustment to ensure that people have reasonable health reasonable education and a reasonable standard of living and that people who are in uh, groups of people who are in trouble are uh, uh, helped by society as a whole and that means a set of systems which we now call a welfare state but a welfare state needs resources and it needs policies so as it's grown up in britain for example there were no there were origins before but mainly since the second world war uh, it's a system which ensures through the taxation uh, system and through welfare provisions that the old old people have income when they get old and are unable to work that ill people have health provision when they need it if they can't afford it themselves, which on the whole people find it difficult to do, that children are educated without relying, without having to rely on a market economy to produce it. So there are a number of assets, and in order to do that, you have obviously to have a means of redistribution, let's say reallocating resources, money, through taxation on the whole. So you raise money through taxation in order to provide education, health, uh, old age pensions and so forth, various forms of taxation. Everybody contributes, but some people will have to contribute more than others because taxation has to be in line with people's ability to to pay. That's another aspect of economic justice. It's just, it's, it's economically just to raise money from people more money for people who could afford a lot than from people who can only afford a little. Everybody ought to participate, but there has to be what's called progressive taxation so that the more you earn, the richer you are. Some people are rich without earning because they inherit money. The more the richer you are, the more you contribute to the welfare of everybody. Just the same as everybody contributes to roads. uh, So everybody has to contribute one way or another to the health and welfare of the population at large is a way of organizing economic activity for whole society by allowing or allowing as much as possible uh, individuals and groups to make decisions for themselves in a sense without full government regulation but it turns out that it's impossible in, in the modern world to have a pure market economy for example You want to ensure that the quality of food is good or that you're not poisoned by food. You want to ensure that when people go on the roads, they all drive on the left or the right, depending on which country they're in. So there has to be some degree of regulation of the market economy. But beyond that, there is a question of whether the market economy purely allowing individuals and companies to organise economic activity will ensure a degree of justice and history doesn't doesn't really support the view that you can leave it to the market uh, without government intervention because then you get uh, uneven inequality of income you get people who are exploited and oppressed you get uh, young young people having to climb chimneys which happened in the in the 19th century. So you want to ensure possibly through, certainly through some degree of regulation, that the market works fairly for people, but you go beyond that because there are certain activities or certain circumstances in which the, the state or the society as a whole, people talk about the state, but we're really talking about the group of, of, of the whole population coming together in a government, uh, society as a whole ensures that you have a degree of economic justice or even efficiency. Think of a war. It's not possible in the modern world to have a war which is fought on a basic of market economies. The state must intervene to raise taxes, to raise armies, to redistribute uh, food and welfare so that it's fair to people, which happened during the war. You have a system of rationing. You just can't run a modern war, war in a modern society without some degree of rationing and only the state do that but that's economic justice you're ensuring that people's living standards are fairly distributed and most important of all at the moment that we're recording that in a major epidemic like the coronavirus you must ensure that the that you can't rely solely on the market you must ensure that society as a whole through a health service through uh, regulations through uh, the formal organization that you minimise the amount of death, really, you minimise the illness and you move to uh, help people who are suffering from it. So you you couldn't run a major crisis through a purely market economy. You can have a lot of market uh, people operating if you have the regulations in the way they can operate. This was an example of that in, in Britain, has been, for example, the railways or the water companies. In, in uh, the early, 19, early uh, 20th century, uh, mid 20th century, from the mid century, the railways uh, were run by the state, it was the National Coal Board, uh, sorry, the National Rail System, British Rail. Uh, but when we introduced the market, and the railways are run by private companies, even then, the state has to set out regulations to ensure they run safely, that the uh, uh, people who use the railways, pay for the railways, are not exploited, that profits are not excessive. So in a modern, very complicated society, there are always going to be circumstances in which you cannot leave things to the market, as, as it said, you must to some extent intervene even if you allow a good deal of freedom it must be freedom within some degree of organization and in the end that's how you achieve economic justice otherwise injustice will result what is the meaning of economic decline of course is a topic that has puzzled an awful lot of historians and economists but in the end it really refers to britain's relative standing as a economy let's say in terms of wealth in terms of its uh, uh, standing vis-a-vis other countries and what broadly speaking what people mean by it is that 200 years ago and more britain pioneered an industrial revolution in which it became supreme in modern technology and all the things we think of as industrial very wealthy it was preeminent in the world as a whole small as it was and of course it created an enormous empire uh, which many people uh, feel was part of the not so much the cost but part of the the explanation of britain's success because it could draw on the resources of africa and asia and australia and so forth Uh, the decline mostly reflects it mostly means that Britain's relative standing compared with America and Russia and China and Europe uh, has fallen. Not that we've become poorer, that's a confusion that people have. We're not poorer, but we're relatively less rich than these other people. And relative to other people, we're not as preeminent as we once were. That's partly because the great industries coal, iron, steel, uh, chemicals uh, have all grown elsewhere uh, in other countries and have outbid us, so that we are co- less competitive than they, than we were, and that's one reason we did join the European Union in in the nineteen seventies. That people felt then that we would we needed the help of these other countries. the The ultimate explanation of this fall in our industrial supremacy is a difficult to answer, but basically it's because we were not able to be as productive. The productivity, the the uh, efficiency with which we worked on all these things um, fell. Part of it was because we were dealing with old resources like the coal industry. It was a limit to the amount of coal we could dig out. But also it was a question of not quite managing to keep up with the industrial work of other countries. However, I believe, uh, and this is where it becomes controversial, that we, we substituted to a large extent our ability to work in, in services. Our financial services remained supreme and still are very important in the world as a whole, banking, insurance and so forth. So we, we, we adjusted the sort of economy we had to suit that need. And And the fact of the matter is, as I've often argued, that nowadays... Our population is much better off than their great grandparents were. So it's very awkward to talk about decline. Uh, if we're richer than our predecessors, our ancestors were. The reason we talk about decline is we we have ambitions to be even even richer than we even even greater welfare than we had, and also to keep up with other countries if we can. So it's it's a matter of competition and relative standing as much as the absolute. We're not poorer, we're relatively less rich than we were compared with other countries. And that, that is the whole question of the debate about uh, uh, Brexit and entering Europe and leaving Europe uh, turns on that, whether we can stand... If you like, uh, not so much alone, stand outside uh, a European or, or join, rejoin them, and uh, and that's where the controversy is. But decline is a relative matter, but it's very important because it affects the way people think. It affects what we can do. It's, it's all very well, as I say, that we're no poorer than we were, but the needs of a national health service are much greater than they were. So although we're we're richer than our grandparents were, we need even more resources to keep up with modern uh, w- modern medicine and, and dealing with the... We're also growing a very... We're an old society, so we need more money simply to help people who can't work anymore but are living into their 80s and 90s. Uh, so it, it, it's a very complicated issue. Decline is not a straightforward question. For
0: more podcasts in this series, Search for Journey to Justice on any podcast platform. If you're interested in education for economic justice or community action, visit www.economicinjustice.org.uk to make the most of our resources.